I'm Amanda Littman, and this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Our guest this week is Ai Jen Poo. She's the co-founder and executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, a labor advocacy group that works to elevate the rights of domestic workers in the United States. I wanted to talk to Ai Jen because her work is directly related to the massive infrastructure bill currently working its way through Congress. We as a society have wildly overlooked underpaid and undervalued care work, but the pandemic has shown us that to undervalue something like this is devastating our society. You think of all the parents and especially the moms who dropped out of the workforce because their kids weren't at school, of how much the economy, of how much people's lives were fucked over by the lack of affordable childcare. You know, especially when we think about folks with disabilities or people who need medical or other kinds of support in the midst of their life. And on the other end of life, affordable elder care. It's a huge functioning part of our society that lets everything else happen. Ijen and I get into the history of this, of why we've been undervaluing women's work, why we've been undervaluing care work, and how the overlap of women being undervalued in our economy and care being undervalued in our economy connect. Um, And in particular, the role that women of color play in the care infrastructure. We are at a huge breaking point for reimagining what care looks like right now. And I think Ijen does a really good job of painting a vision for what America could be. It's one that I think requires a lot of optimism and a lot of hope to imagine. But as she says, the way we get there is because we work for it. And we're only at this point because of the work that Ijen has done. She is a MacArthur genius. She's a visionary. She's an incredible leader and organizer. And it was really such a delight to talk to her. So I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in the news right now. Obviously, the fall of Afghanistan is the biggest and primary topic on all the headlines and all the cable shows and everything else. You know, I am not a foreign policy expert. I'm not going to pretend to be. I am simply someone who grew up in the 90s and then watched 9-11 on TV as a sixth grader and then has spent two-thirds of my life in a country at war that I didn't really understand. So I'll just say two things about it. First, I think it is the correct moral place to be that America should accept as many refugees as we possibly can that not accepting refugees, that the bureaucratic explanation of it takes too long to process visas, it's too complicated, there's too much red tape, that's a choice that we are making. In many ways, we caused this crisis in Afghanistan, and we now have a responsibility to help the people who are trying to escape from it. So I hope that this is where the United States government lands. I hope that we're able to take our cues from some of the other countries who have set the example that we should be setting about how to accept refugees and how to welcome them and resettle them. We'll see. The other thing I would say is that as you are reading about the political implications for Joe Biden, I would caution you. Most (laughs) of the things that we think matter in the electoral sense don't. Uh, We still have a long time before the midterm elections and even longer before the next presidential election. Foreign policy in particular, like most people don't pay attention to politics. Most people really don't pay attention to foreign policy. And most people really don't pay attention to wars that don't make a ton of sense and aren't quite able to connect the cause and effect, especially when the cause and effect here is so complicated and longstanding. So as you're reading about the pontification and the pundits who are talking about, oh, this is going to doom Joe Biden's presidency or, oh, this is going to be like his whatever. Nobody knows the future and that's all a load of bullshit. So just keep that in mind as you're reading about this crisis. 
I'll leave it there for now. Let's get to this week's, I think, really invigorating conversation with iGen. iGen Poo, welcome to Battleground. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Let's start with some level setting. For people who may not be familiar with the term care infrastructure, can you define that? I think most folks don't even really think about infrastructure in general, but it's been so much a part of the policy Mm -hmm. conversation right now because when we think about recovering from an economic crisis or recession, one of the first things that Congress does is invest in infrastructure jobs, jobs that are about repairing roads and bridges and tunnels. And so we think about physical infrastructure and we think about it in terms of what gets us to work every day, right? Mm -hmm. And what enables the economy to function, what enables society to function. And the thing about it is because the realm of care has largely been assigned to women and assumed Mm -hmm. and taken for granted that women will do, we haven't even thought of it as infrastructure, but it is actually the most fundamental thing in our lives that enables everything else to happen and function and Um, I think Senator Casey said recently in a hearing, it's like some people need a bridge to get to work and some people need childcare to get to work. Um, And in fact, even the men who are going to be repairing our bridges and tunnels need care in order to get to their jobs, to do their work. And so we have started to talk about care as infrastructure because that is what it is. And in order for us to start thinking about it as something we need to be investing in as a nation, we have to start thinking about it in that way. It's a public good and it's absolutely essential. So there's a couple components to this. There's the people who are doing the work, the caregivers, and the people who need the care or who benefit from someone else doing the work. Let's start with the people who need the care. There are kids and then there's the elderly, I think is the biggest bucket. So there's certainly some others that I'm leaving out. People with disabilities. People with disabilities. Yeah. What are we currently doing now for the folks that need the care and what should we be doing? Well, the crazy thing is, Amanda, is everyone needs care at some point in our lives. I mean, the reality is, is that as a country, we need more care than ever before because the baby boom generation is aging. There's 4 million people who turn 65 every year. And then millennials are having babies. 4 million babies are born every year. Huge needs for care on both ends of the generational Mm -hmm. spectrum. And we have very little in place to support that. So if you need childcare, the average cost is about $9,000 per year. And the average cost of a private room in a nursing home is about $100,000 per year. Mm -hmm. But 60% of the American population makes less than $60,000 per year. So the numbers just don't add up and people can't afford it. So we have some programs in place that support very, very, very low income people to get access to childcare. And you can completely spend down your assets and get access to home care through Medicaid or long-term care through Medicaid. But for most of us, we're in that in-between space where we're having to basically pay out of pocket a lot of money to be able to afford to care for the people we love. And what we have is essentially an overworked and underpaid caregiving workforce that we rely on. Child care workers, early childhood educators, home care workers. The average annual income of a home care worker is $17,200 mm. per year. 
Can you imagine trying to support your family on that amount of money? And so because the wages are so low, we have really high rates of turnover and massive home care deserts all over the country where people who need the services and are eligible for some of these publicly funded programs can't get access to the services. And the whole conversation right now is about coming out of this pandemic How can we invest in our caregiving infrastructure in a way that both makes care affordable and accessible for the families who need it Mm -hmm. and raises wages and makes these jobs good jobs that you can really sustain in? And we are closer than we've ever been (laughs) to realizing that potential. It's actually a game changer. And so I feel hopeful and the challenge is enormous because we've underinvested in care for everyone for so long. I'm thinking a lot about like the complicated ways in which guilt comes up about needing help and needing to pay for help and asking for support, whether it's taking care of your elderly parents or your kids. Can you talk a little about sort of like the emotional chaos wrapped up in caregiving for women in particular? Part of the devaluing of the care economy is an underestimation of what Mm -hmm. is required to do this work and an invisibilization of the people who do it, the energy that goes into it. And so what you have is a whole way in which women have internalized that they're supposed to do all of this Mm -hmm. on their own, on top of everything else without support without infrastructure. And it's fed by a version of American individualism Mm -hmm. where we're all supposed to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's like the gendered version of that. And it's really deep what women have internalized in terms of what we must shoulder in our families and therefore in the economy. And it is essentially the house of cards that collapsed in the pandemic. And the reason why we're back at 1988 women's labor force participation is because it was completely unsustainable before. Yeah. And women were on a daily basis dealing with impossible choices between the impossible expectations that they had of themselves as caregivers, as parents, as daughters, and the impossible pressures of work. And this whole phenomenon of the sandwich generation where you're paninied between the pressures of childcare and elder care at the same time just literally impossible. And it all collapsed in the pandemic. And we have to make sure that what we build coming out of it is not a house of cards, but a totally different set of choices for women. Can you give us a short history lesson here? How did we get to this place of Mm -hmm. women's work being so obviously devalued? Well, you know, I think our entire economic model is based on the idea that when it comes to caregiving and work inside of the home, that that is the domain of women. It's always been associated with women and assumed that women will do. And as a profession, care work has always been associated with women of color. Some of our first domestic workers in the United States were enslaved African women. And the fact that this industry, this workforce is deeply rooted in a legacy of slavery in this country, has really shaped how it's been treated Mm. in law and policy. And in the New Deal, when Congress was debating the labor laws that would define how workers are treated in our laws, 
Southern Dixiecrats refused to support those labor laws if they included equal protections for domestic workers and farm workers who were Black at the time. So it's part of a legacy of racism in this country that we have devalued this work, in addition to the deep devaluing of women's work that has been a part of our economic model forever. And I think in the pandemic, we all just kind of realized, hey, we're doing the very best we can and we need help. We need public programs, policy, a strong workforce to support us. And I think that care awakening that we had amidst a care crisis is what's enabling this moment where we're actually going to try I hope, um, to address it, which is really exciting. So what does the legislation actually do? So in the president's Build Back Better agenda, he proposes hundreds of billions of dollars in investment in childcare, paid family and medical leave, and home and community-based services for the aging and people with disabilities. And within that commitment is a commitment to raise wages for the workforce that is a direct investment in good jobs for women and women of color. It is a total game changer. And right now, as part of the $3.5 trillion budget plan that the Senate just took the next step forward on, is that commitment. So we have the potential to invest in a significant way in our ability to get access to the care we need for our families across the lifespan and make sure that these jobs become good jobs for the women who do them. It's a total game changer. Is it enough? It's a really big, big step forward. Mm -hmm. So for example, in home care, 88% of Americans would prefer to age at home and in the community instead of going into a nursing home. Mm -hmm. And 70% of the home care workforce works through the Medicaid program. Mm -hmm. So if we invest in the Medicaid program the way that the president has proposed, we can both expand access to those services and bring the more than 800,000 people who are currently eligible but are on waiting lists because they don't have the funding to support their services. And we can create about 1.1 million new good jobs per year in the sector. I mean, is that enough to meet the massive need for home care going into the future? No, but it is a massive, massive step forward. And I mean transformative because we would be shoring up this workforce for the long term where this job could be a sustainable profession. We would be enabling millions of working family caregivers to go to work coming out of this pandemic. We would be ensuring that hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of families who need these services can get access to them. I mean, it's just, it is huge. It's not one of those kind of biting around the edges kinds of progress that we're used to yeah. in a phase of incrementalism. It really is a big leap forward. Do you think it's going to pass? I am determined. I mean, That's the right answer. <laughs> I am determined. And there's this whole beautiful ecosystem of organizations called Care Can't Wait that is working together to make it real. And we're organizing. We're not going to stop until we get it done. Because I think this is like a once in a generation opportunity for us to invest in care, invest in our families and these workers and in women. Mm -hmm. I mean... We've got to do this. There's no other way. 
part of the reason we have dismissed this for so long is because it is predominantly an issue that women are struggling with, both women as caregivers and women who are able then to go work because they are able to have caregivers at home. That's right. Are there other countries that get this right? There are other countries that make childcare, paid leave, and long-term care much more affordable and accessible and have it really built into their social safety net, their public infrastructure. They have invested in it Mm -hmm. as a public good in a different way. But I will say that across the board, I don't think that there's a country in the world that's adequately valued the caregiving workforce. Mm. And it is difficult work that is skilled labor that requires strength and emotional intelligence. And we still culturally refer to it as help, Mm -hmm. right? We don't even think about it as the dignified profession that it is for millions of women and some men too. And what's crazy about it is a lot of economists are predicting that by the year 2030, because of our huge need for care in this country and the fact that these jobs can't be outsourced or automated, that care jobs could be the largest single occupation in the entire American workforce by the year 2030. So we have got to make these jobs good jobs, not just for the workers who do them, but for the future and well-being of our economy as a whole. Battlegrounds has to take a quick break, but we'll be right back on care infrastructure and the domestic labor movement with iGen Poo. Welcome back to Battleground. We're talking to iGen Poo from the National Domestic Workers Alliance. How has that gig economy played into this? Because it does seem like a lot of the care jobs have been sort of outsourced through apps or through just like on-demand support. My colleague, Pollock Shaw, who's our innovation director, she calls domestic workers the original gig economy mm. workers because the conditions that domestic workers have always worked with, lack of job security, having to piece together different clients and jobs to survive, no access to a safety net, no paid sick days, no health care, not even a clear job description or predictable hours. Those conditions increasingly define more and more work in mm-hmm. the American economy. And it is like, you know, the gigification of work in our country is really like the domestic workification of, of our future. And, you know, that said... It is also true that technology has really come in and disrupted a lot of how domestic work happens, where you have these matching platforms that are massive, like Care.com and Sitter City and Urban Sitter. And then you have these dispatchers who dispatch care and cleaning services. Mm -hmm. And technology has really come in to aggregate these relationships in a way that they've never been aggregated before. And I think that that is both a challenge and an opportunity. It's a challenge in that these companies have a lot of power Mm -hmm. and that power can become concentrated in ways that um, in the past, domestic work has been much more diffuse, right? Um, And it's an opportunity in that it's a chance to really dive in and raise wages and raise standards and formalize things in a way that's better for everyone. And so I think that's the kind of moment that we're in is, 
are we going to bring care work out of the shadows and into the light as a real valued profession that we invest in as part of our public infrastructure? Or are we going to allow it to become a massive part of a gigified economy? And my hope is that we choose the former. You mentioned that domestic workers are not allowed to unionize. Most labor laws do not apply to them as part of this original creation of union laws in the 20s, 30s, 40s. Has the gigification or the creation of the platforms changed the way that you organize? Technology has changed the way that we organize. Mm -hmm. It's really amazing. I mean, right now, all of our worker meetings are done by Zoom Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and multilingually, too. We use the language function. That's awesome. Like simultaneous interpretation in Spanish and Creole and Nepali. And um, so technology has made a lot possible and domestic workers are online. They are on Facebook, they are on WhatsApp. Yeah. And so it's great in that we can really reach people in a way that was so hard to do. I mean, when I first started organizing, I literally had like a stack of flyers and I would Mm. go from playground to playground (laughs) in Manhattan and sit down next to a nanny and just talk to her for a bit and hand out a flyer. I was known as the Chinese lady with the flyers. (laughs) Um, And now, you know, we've got online community of domestic workers who you know, I don't think we ever could have built that kind of a community absent technology. So there's a lot of advantages to it for sure. One of the things I love about NDWA is that you do sort of encompass the full ecosystem of ways in which you can push the conversation and push legislation. You have your political work, you have the organizing work, you have the culture work, which I find to be so interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that culture work? I think really early on what we recognized was that We could change laws and policy, but until we change how people think and feel about this work and the people who do it, there are always going to be limits to the change that we can make. And we really believe that there's this whole realm of our lives that is our emotional lives, that's not Mm -hmm. rational, um, that is... No amount of research, data, facts, or figures can really penetrate there. So there's like what's factually true for us, and that matters. Mm -hmm. And then there's what's emotionally true. And they're two different things, and they both equally shape our realities and also our politics and our policy. And I think what we decided really early on was that we had to really get into the emotional dimensions. I mean, care is so emotional. Domestic work is like very intimate. And we had to really get in there to shape how people feel and understand this work and the people who do it in a way that was about interdependence and everyone's human dignity and the inherent value of caregiving as one of the fundamental things that we as humans do and rely on. And so we started teaming up with people who are great at emotional storytelling and shaping Mm -hmm. narratives like artists and storytellers and tried to leverage their ability to tell powerful emotional stories to change the way that people think and feel about this work. Like working with director Alfonso Cuaron on the film Roma, 
Mm, Um, Such a beautiful movie. It really was stunning film and a film that's so unusual because you had an indigenous domestic worker as the protagonist and you didn't just see her working as a part of the family. You saw her falling in love and getting her Mm. heart broken and gossiping with her friend (laughs) and doing sit-ups by candlelight. And she was like a whole human being. And that's the kind of thing that creates an opening, a little bit more space in the public imagination for us to have a different kind of conversation and feeling about something that's so deeply embedded in our culture. Stick around for more of my conversation with Ai-Jen Poo. Battleground is back with Ai-Jen Poo of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. There's been a lot of talk especially in the last six months as people are thinking about offices reopening and companies changing their policies to make them a little bit more accessible for a lot of folks about the future of work more generally. I know this is something that you've thought about a lot. You've written about a lot. literally wrote the book on. What does the future of work look like for domestic workers? I really think that's up to us. Mm. And I don't mean to be glib about it at all. I really think that we're at this crossroads especially now where we have this, like I said, generational opportunity to reset our economy for the next era. And we can decide that we're largely going to invest in sectors where the jobs are mostly jobs that men currently hold, Mm -hmm. not entirely. Or we can really acknowledge that we live in a service-driven, service-based economy, a globalized economy, and low-wage work has been allowed to persist and dominate, like we had even before the pandemic, an epidemic of (laughs) low-wage work. And we can decide that we are going to raise wages. We are going to make work pay for every American worker because all work in the end is essential. (laughs) And we can decide that care is essential and that we are going to treat it like infrastructure, like roads and broadband and bridges in the 21st century. If we can add broadband to how we think about infrastructure, we can add care too. And if we make that decision, the future of work for care workers, for domestic workers is on a bright trajectory, just like in the 20s and 30s, when manufacturing jobs were dangerous sweatshop jobs that a lot of immigrant women did, we turned those jobs from poverty wage jobs into this big runway into middle-class economic security and mobility. And we can do the same for care workers and service workers in general in this country. We just have to decide that we want to. Where is the the obstacle? Is it just Republicans mm-hmm. don't really like women of color? Is that, <laughs> I can say that, is that, is that it? <laughs> you know, it's so true that these policies are really, really popular across yeah. the board. Like Republicans, Democrats, independents all support these policies at super high percentages. And Honestly, I feel like I need to ask you this question. Why haven't we won the political narrative that these policies are winners? Like, I don't totally get that yet. And I think, you know, for Republicans, you might have some Republicans who agree that this is a 
problem, but they don't agree that public infrastructure and public investments is the way to solve it. And I will say just to those Republicans out there who may (laughs) think that, that I am a big believer that when the market can solve a problem, we should absolutely let the market solve a problem. Care is a problem that the market cannot solve. (laughs) And I have looked at it from every single direction. And in fact, I used to go speak at these conferences about elder care and private insurance companies would come up to me afterwards and be like, Ijen, I totally agree with you. We sell long-term care insurance and it's a crappy product. We're trying to get out of the market. Like it's just not. So it's like actually a lot of actors in the private sector will agree that we need big public investments and intervention if we're to help American families and workers care for the people that they love. Full stop. Mm -hmm. I'm fine with the market doing its thing. And I just, There's just not a way for the market to solve for our need for care without a big public investment in care's infrastructure. Do you find the debate over whether or not it's infrastructure, I would say I find it infuriating because like, (laughs) of course it is infrastructure. And even if you disagree with the definition, we need to invest in it. We need to invest in it. Exactly. That's kind of how I feel. And I, I will make the argument that it is infrastructure, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, however you want to frame it, as long as we're investing in it as a truly essential, valuable part of our economy and society. I mean, the definition of government is to really help solve for society's problems that cannot be solved by individuals or by the market. And this is the quintessential definition of that. When the government needs to come in and help us find collective solutions. And I think however you want to call it, if you want to call it infrastructure or not, I just, I think we just need to invest big time. What's the dream for you? My dream is that we would have what I call universal family care in this Mm -hmm. country. The idea that we would have one efficient program that we're all contributing to, that we can all benefit from, that helps us afford quality childcare, paid leave, quality home and community-based care or long-term care in the setting of our choice, where we don't have to worry about affording to take care of the people that we love Mm. as we work and as we contribute what we have to contribute to the world. And I think that that's possible in this country where we have so much talent and so much creativity and so many dedicated civil servants and all the work you've done to nurture (laughs) a sense of ambition to be in politics among young people like I totally think we can get there. And and that's where I'd love for us to end up someday, because that would enable every single family, caregiver, care worker to be able to live, work, and care with dignity. So much of getting to that vision will require persuasion, even though it feels like self-evident that you should care about this for the economy, you should care about this because it's like the right, humane, dignified thing to do. As you think about the path to that dream, to universal family care, What do you see as the most compelling case to make for people and why they should give a shit? I think that we have to have a plan Mm -hmm. in this country. Every eight seconds, someone turns 65. Mm. And because of 
wonderful advances in technology and healthcare. We're living longer than ever before, and we've added an entire generation onto our lifespan with literally no plan, Mm -hmm. no infrastructure, no support in place. And millennials are having families and heading into a period of crisis and uncertainty with everything happening with climate change, pandemics, like so much uncertainty. We must have a plan for how we can be certain that our families will be cared for so that we can unleash our ability to work and solve all of these pressing problems for the 21st century. We have to shore up the things that matter most in our lives, and that's the people that we love. That's beautiful. I love your vision for this country. It makes me think like, oh, maybe it's possible. (laughs) I think it is. This is a great country in so many ways, and it has yet to realize its full potential for greatness. And so many things have stood in our way. Structural racism, Mm -hmm. misogyny, classism, ableism. So many things have stood in our between us and greatness. The only way to undo and push through all of that is to get in it and build it and change it. Amazing. Thank you for the work you do at NDWA and every other organization you run. And thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Ijen. Oh, it was so fun, Amanda. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much to Ajahn Poo for joining me on Battleground this week. We have been getting some truly excellent thoughts and feedback from our listeners. So thank you to everyone who has emailed us or left us a voicemail. And for those who've been a little mean, I appreciate the notes. If there's someone you think we should have on Battleground or a topic you'd like us to cover, please call and leave us a message at 929-399-6748 or email us at battleground at therecount.com. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating and an excellent review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our associate producer. Tara Ottavino is our producer and story editor. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 